Darker Days of Dorothy Gale, Aftermath, for Episode 36, Chapter 30, The Reunion Special 3, and Cantos 16 and 17 of Dante's Inferno. The Usurers and Jarian. Well, hello there. You came back, or you just arrived, in the middle of a great big mess. This isn't the best place to start, but who am I to tell you what to do? Either way, welcome to Darker Days of Dorothy Gale, and a guided tour of Dante's Inferno. Consider me your Virgil. Only not as well-spoken. Not as respected, not as poetic, not as... Well, maybe don't think of me as Virgil. And I won't think of you as Dante. Unless that's what you want me to do, I guess. Or unless your name is Dante. In which case, it would be weird if I didn't think of you as Dante. (sighs) Good lord. This is the most rambling intro I've recorded in a long time. So, welcome to the show, or welcome back. Either way, let's get into it. Canto 16 of the Inferno finds Dante and Virgil traveling the riverbanks until it forms a large waterfall. Dante meets a few noblemen from Florence here. It's actually a pretty unremarkable encounter. The real excitement comes with the arrival of Jerrion, standing at the edge of a precipice where the river of blood flows off the edge and into the nothingness. Virgil takes Dante's belt and throws it over the edge. Dante is confused, but is reassured that something big is about to happen. The canto ends with Dante pleading with the reader to believe that what is about to happen is what he truly saw. It's a strange pseudo-fourth-wall break that really implores the reader to suspend their disbelief, because suspension is gonna be needed. In Canto 17, we meet Jerrion, a giant beast flying up from the abyss. The great beast has the head of a man, the body of a serpent, and a tail tipped with a poisonous stinger. Jerrion in Greek mythology is, well, to say the least, a tangled nightmare of a mess. I'm not going to get super into who or what Jerrion is outside of Dante's works and, of course, my own, But here's a little bit of what I've gathered from various sources. In Greek mythology, Jerrion is a beast that is the grandson of Medusa and the nephew of Pegasus. Sometimes he has one body and three heads, sometimes three bodies. Some accounts claim he has six hands and six feet, And sometimes he has wings, while other times he does not. Occasionally, he's described as having six legs, 
which makes sense if he has six feet, and sometimes he has three bodies connected to one pair of legs. Oftentimes, he appears to be a warrior with a pet two-headed hound named Orthrus, as easy as that is to say, which, crazy, I know, just so happens to be the brother of Cerberus. Anyways, after all that, Dante's description of him as a winged, man-headed snake thing with a stinger seems pretty tame. Virgil tells Dante to go ahead and have a look around so that he, Virgil, can have a little chat with Jerry. We don't really get to see or hear what Virgil says to the beast, but based on his past behavior with the creatures and beings of the Inferno, I imagine angry threats, or at the very least, harsh words. I mean, he threw shit at Cerberus and taunted a minotaur into a blind rage. You think Jerrion just got a pat on the head and a scratch behind the ears? <laughs> I doubt it. Anyway, Dante does as he's told and kind of wanders off. He comes across a trio of usurers. He doesn't recognize any of them, and they aren't particularly happy to see him. He does, however, recognize their family seals on heavy purses that hang around their necks. This is where my description of the usurers in the previous chapter comes from, by the way. I kept the heavy purses and the anger. I added the gold balls and chains dragging behind them. Dante returns to find Virgil seated on Jerrion like it's no big thing. Just another day in hell. He hesitantly climbs up, and away they go. Jerrion carries the poets slowly down, deeper into the depths of the Inferno. In Chapter 30, the Reunion Special 3, Mr. and the Woodman are reunited with Dorothy at the edge of a large cliffside. With little work, Vel manages to get the Queen's necklace from Mr. She throws it over the edge, and Jerrion appears. Although, in the current recording, I pronounced it Jerrion. Which, I don't know. I don't know why I pronounced it that way. I did, and at, at the point of this recording, I just don't want to go and change that one little word. So it's going to be like that for a little bit, anyways. But I digress. As far as I can tell, it doesn't really matter what is thrown over, whether it's Dante's belt, or I guess in my case, it doesn't matter. I just needed something to move the story along. I've referenced Thank You for Smoking a handful of times, in particular the moment Rob Lowe's character tells Aaron Heckart's character that there's an easy fix to almost any literary problem. One simple line of dialogue. Thank God we created the whatever device. Dante's belt? Well, it's the whatever device. I needed a reason for the Queen to let the travelers go, and I needed something for Vel to toss over the edge. So the necklace? Eh, not important. It's just a... whatever device. Anyway, everyone's angry at her, until Jerrion shows up and knocks them off their feet. 
I figure since there's no singular description of the monster, I could describe it however I wanted, though it's still somewhat close to Dante's vision. My Jerrion has the head of a small child, a scaled chest, giant eagle's wings, a back covered in shaggy fur, and a long tail tipped with a poisonous stinger. The baby's head stands for innocence, the eagle's wings for bravery, the clawed feet for the character's ability to stand their ground, the soft, shaggy fur for the comfort they've all lost along the way, the poison stinger for the dangers they've faced and will face, and the scaled chest for the durability of their physical selves and resilience of their emotional being. Nah, there's no deeper meaning in my description. Eagle's wings and clawed feet, because they sounded cool. Scaled chest, because it sounded like a dragon. And a baby's head, because babies are scary as fuck. And a giant baby head is that much more terrifying. All that other stuff sounded good, though. Right? One of my all-time favorite rock bands is Eight Stop Seven. They gave an interview many, many moons ago, in which the lead singer, Evan Sulagoff, describes how the name came to be. They were originally called Days or Haze or something. I, I can't remember for sure. I just remember it was something with a A's at the end of it. Anyway, he mentioned he wasn't a big fan of the name. One of the band members suggested something like Eight Stops something or other. I can't remember what it was stopping. The eight meaning infinity, the something or other meaning... I don't know, like something or other, I guess. Anyway, it morphed into eight stops seven. Seven meaning something unpleasant or ending or limiting. Like seven years bad luck or seven days of the week or seven something or other, I guess. So anyways, the title of the band eventually, in a roundabout way, came to mean that infinity stops your perceived limitations. Or at least that's what I get from it anyway. The point of all this is to say that the meaning of the band name was kind of formed off the cuff, almost like the name came before the definition. It's something that's always kind of stuck with me. Also, a side note, I think I've mentioned this before. The other side, as in the place Dorothy and her traveling party currently reside, also came from the band Eight Stop Seven and their incredible song, Greetings from the Other Side, although sometimes I think it's just labeled as The Other Side. I also recently listened to Faith, Hope, and Carnage on Audible, which is a series of interviews with Nick Cave by Sean O'Hagan. Cave is a deeply spiritual artist, he views creating art, whether it be lyrics or poetry, short stories or novels or films or paintings, as something that is almost otherworldly. He describes his work as something taking on a life of its own, as though he's simply a conduit for the language of the universe to manifest. Sometimes 
you might not know the deeper meaning of something when you write it or create it. But that doesn't mean that deeper meaning doesn't exist or can't exist. I say all of this because sometimes that's how I feel. I didn't realize that's how I felt for a long time, and you might just think I'm trying to model myself or my philosophy after my literary idol, and that's okay, you can think that. But when I wrote Dark Days, I had a very rigid set of guidelines. Retell the wonderful Wizard of Oz. Take each chapter and throw a few peppers into the gumbo. You know, spice things up a bit. But don't stray too far from the original story. It was pretty straightforward. Outside of a few moments in the introduction of Reginald, I think I stuck to the source material pretty well. And when I wrote Darker Days, I sat down with a similar set of rigid guidelines. Combine the marvelous Land of Oz with the Inferno. I had an outline. I had chapters set. I even had a pattern that I was going to follow. This chapter would be a Dorothy chapter, this one would be a Tip and Jack chapter, this one would be Mr., and this one would be Tin Man, and so forth, and so forth, and so forth. And then once I got to the end of the characters, I would go back to the beginning and start the chapter cycle over again. And I would just keep doing that until the book was done. And then, when it came time to write the Inferno part, I was going to do the same thing, but I also had a setup where it was going to be this chapter is this canto, this chapter is that canto, and, and on and on and on until, and, and, until the project was all finished. I was going to treat it like I did with Dark Days of Dorothy Gale and the wonderful Wizard of Oz. That idea quickly went out the window. The story, it began to take on a life of its own spiraled out of control, and for the first time in my writing, my characters began to feel more real to me than ever before. I mean, there were times that even I was caught off guard by the plot twists and where things were going. I, I don't know if any of this is making sense to anyone but me, but I don't know how to explain it any better. This story, it just kind of flowed right through me. And that brings us to now, where I'm attempting to describe my writing process to you. Anyway, all that is to say this. Jerrion didn't mean much to me when I first visualized him. He was just a cool creature a way for my characters to get from point A to point B. And it needed to be reminiscent of Dante's vision. When I wrote this aftermath, when I came up with all that nonsense about the child's face being innocence, the eagle's wings being bravery and whatnot, it all came to me like it was nothing. I didn't even have to think about what all those characteristics could mean. So maybe, 
just maybe that deeper meaning was there all along. And maybe it just took this introspective look to find it. So take from it what you want. This chapter is super short. I think it came out to be about like five minutes long. And there isn't really much more to say about it. So, if I missed something or failed to address something you feel I should have, or if I goofed on my summary of Dante's Inferno, which is always possible, mind you, let me know. I'm always open to questions, comments, or, you guessed it, constructive criticism. You don't have to like the show. Not sure why you're listening if you don't. But, like it or not, you can be nice. I know you can. I believe in you. If you want to get in touch with me, you can. You can always find me at darkdaysofdorothygale at outlook.com. You can find me on Twitter and TikTok, where it's darkdorothyg. Alternately, you can find me on Twitter, TikTok, and Instagram, where it's the ordinary sun. That's S U N. And of course, if social media isn't your jam, there's always the official Dark Days website, ddofdg.com. You can also find links to t shirts and stickers and stuff there as well. Darker Days of Dorothy Gale used to be on Amazon as an ebook and even in paperback form. But at the time of this recording, it's not there. The podcast is the only way to experience it. It might be there later on. I'm, I'm sure somewhere down the road I'll republish it. Maybe when this podcast is over, when this series is over, or season, whatever you want to call it, is over. Maybe I'll re-release it as, as uh, you know, like Darker Days of Dorothy Gale uh, podcast edition or something silly like that. But anyways, podcast is the only way for now. But if you would like to support this show, buying a t-shirt or a sticker or something really is the coolest way to go about it. And if you would like to support my specific brand of creativity in a more direct financial way, you can always find me at buymeacoffee.com slash ordinary sun. Again, that's S-U-N. If you do, I'll send you a handwritten thank you note, complete with a fun little sketch. Also, I'll even give you a shout out on this wildly obscure show, if you want me to. So, anyways, if you don't want to donate to this cause, that's perfectly fine. I totally understand it. I am happy to do this either way. So come back next week for the incredibly intense chapter 31, The Sad Story of Amelia Driscoll. Thanks for listening. I love you all.